0: I said Everything gonna be alright everything's going to be all right. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's IAQ Radio. It's Friday, July 31st. Unbelievable July's over. This week is episode 378. My name is Radio Joe Hughes and in studio E is John. You got to have faith. He's actually working this remote today, believe it or not. Joining me from Studio C in McKee's Rocks will be the Z man looking for him to sign in any moment now. This This week's guest is Greg Patterson. Greg, we're going to talk about uh, OSHA health and safety issues, disaster restoration, indoor environmental quality. Before we do that, though, let's thank our marquee sponsors.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services.
0: Okay, and uh, don't forget also to check out the iaqtraining.com website for the most current dates for the training you trust. And before we turn it over to the Z-Man, I think what we're going to do, since he's uh, running a little behind getting on today, and that's my fault, I'm going to go ahead and do the introduction for Greg. First, I think we have some music. Making sure it's ventilation,
1: working that confined space. Hot work, 35 foot rule, that's the case. Sarah you said, make sure it's safe up in the space. Safe.
0: Be safe. Okay, Greg Patterson's with us. He's vice president at GP Systems Inc. GP helps businesses identify OSHA compliance issues in their workplaces, manage their safety programs, in addition to offering custom written safety programs for organizations. They provide the required safety training. So he's been out there doing this type of work. In addition, he's worked as a contractor for the U.S. Department of Energy on Global Threat Reduction Initiative, Transportation Security, and some other programs. He was also a contract consultant in the Middle East for Deloitte consulting in the area of police detention disaster management fire service civil defense and border enforcement he has developed numerous health and training courses he's got a bs and an ms degree from illinois state university and he's got the certified in homeland security three designation let's uh, see if we can well let's first say hello to the z-man cliff how are you good cliff and then uh, also let's see if we've got greg on the line hello greg
1: Hello, Joe. How
0: are you? Great, thanks. Hey, let's jump right into it. Um, let's let's go right into a question or two on this health and safety with respect to disaster restoration. I, I want to talk, in, and we mentioned this before the show, what OSHA standard does the restoration work fall under? In other words, is it an industry standard, construction industry standard, both? It falls under both.
2: It falls under both 1910 which is general industry, and 1926, which is construction. And if there is any demolition going on, it falls under subpart T of
0: 1926. I see. So, and what about cleaning people? Are you familiar with that, you know, like uh, carpet cleaners? Cleaning
2: people, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. They're under the HazCom standard, which is 1910-1200, and as part of uh, the HazCom standard, GHS global harmonization of uh, and labeling of chemicals I so see. the GHS so they're they're under those uh, due to the uh, chemicals that they use in at the workplace
0: okay and you know we know that you've worked closely with the demolition industry as well um, firms engaged in disaster repair commonly perform partial interior demolition or small scale demolition, basically, what practical advice do you have for them with respect to OSHA issues?
2: Okay, well, one key ingredient that I find a lot of the restoration folks that are doing demolition don't necessarily do that most commercial demolition companies do, is you have to get an an engineering survey done prior to beginning the work. Okay, so that has to be signed off by a a registered engineer. And then after that, determining uh, OSHA wants to make sure that the person on site is competent. Whoever's directing the work, that they protect the public and workplace safety. So what OSHA wants to make sure is that if you're doing demolition work, you have the proper warning signs. If if any of them are working at height, which is over six feet, uh, in construction for feed in general industry, you have to have a written fall protection or fall prevention plan. You have to provide the appropriate personal protective equipment or PPE, and then you have to train your employees prior to work commencement. Hmm. And then from there you have to identify the hazard and determine what are the safe workplace practices. and then of course, as part of the construction site or that site you have to do general housekeeping and your staging staging area has to be free of of any uh, impediments uh due to egress so you have to have a way to get uh to and from uh unobstructed
0: you know you mentioned the term competent person and i think that can be one of the most confusing terms in osha compliance and, and with respect to OSHA compliance issues, can, can, you, can you tell people how we, uh, how we verify someone is a competent person? Let's say we've got a disaster restoration company. They're in removing um, a load-bearing wall, so it's considered demolition, I believe. How do they verify or how do they um, establish that someone is a competent person?
2: Okay, the, the definition, and it's, it's broadly based, so I'm going to paraphrase it, but under OSHA, it's a person who has been appointed or assigned by the company that has the requisite skills, training, and or edu- education that can determine what needs to be done, and if there are problems, issues, that they have the authority to take corrective action up to and through stopping the work if it's being done improperly or, or uh, unsafely. So that is the definition of a competent person.
0: And is there any specific training or education outlined within, say, for instance, the demolition portion of OSHA?
2: There, there certainly is, and for the different standards, there are different you know components. So for, like, respiratory protection, which is 1910.134 under OSHA, They would have to be certified on whatever respiratory protection equipment that was recommended for that job. Okay. In addition, like fall protection, which is one of the biggest ones, that's under 1926.501. Fall protection is they have to have been trained on the equipment, and you can go to, like, I I train with Fall Tech, and they have a two-day course on fall protection, competent person training.
0: So they... They may or may not necessarily be approved by OSHA to do that, All but right.
2: correct okay. if OSHA does not approve OSHA comes out and said, "Here is what a competent person is you The company has said, "We hold this person out to be a competent person." Then OSHA says, "We'll demonstrate that they have the training, the background, the education, the knowledge to do that, and they have the authority to take corrective action or stop the job if it's not being done properly.
0: Okay. I like that. All right. Let's get the Z Man in here real quick. Cliff, do you have a question or a follow up?
1: Well, I think I want to go back to this demolition part with having an engineer. Um, yes. Yeah. At what point do we need one? You know, I understand if there's something that's load bearing or whatever, we may need one. But a lot of what's removed by contractors is you know, drywall, insulation stuff that would,
2: you know, stuff that would get wet. So, so they still need an engineer uh, for that? Well, it, it, it depends. And see, nothing simple in this, in this regard. If it's a commercial project, then before demolition is done, you're supposed to have an engineering report. If it's a residential, then uh, I've seen OSHA enforce it, and I've seen OSHA not enforce it. it it's going to depend on the situation. But if it's a commercial job and it's demolition as defined, and you'll look at subpart team and you you'll see what the demolition uh, definition is. Then it has to have an engineering report prior to beginning work and survey. Okay,
0: thanks. Yeah. You know, in the in the show announcement, we told people that you know you had you had written up a little uh, paragraph for me about how this time of year things are a little slow uh, for the OSHA folks, and they may go out and do some targeted type of enforcement. Can you expand on that a little bit for listeners? What what leads you to to say that, and and what can they okay. be watching for?
2: Okay, the, the pace of OSHA's enforcement inspections is, is running at historically high levels. It's never been this high. And the reason being is the chief of uh, Enforcement executive for OSHA is Dr. David Michaels, and he has stated, and I quote, for many employers, investing in job safety happens only when they have adequate incentives to comply with the OSHA requirements. Higher penalties and more aggressive targeted enforcement will provide a greater deterrent and further encourage these employers to furnish safe and healthy workplaces for their employees. Now, what that means is OSHA has targeted for the remainder of 2015, they have targeted two uh, areas that they're doing specific enforcement action. One is construction, and the other is the healthcare industry. So, having said that, um, you know, anytime you're what triggers an OSHA inspection, other than the uh, Specific targeted enforcement is if there's a fatality or if at least three people are injured uh, and admitted to the hospital for the same incident. So those are always going to trigger an inspection, a fatality or hosp- multiple hospitalizations. But what you have to keep in mind is that um, OSHA's targeted inspections in 2014, 63% were. Uh, as a result of targeted industries or facilities with high incident rates. So, most uh, entities out there have an EMR uh, EMR rate for uh, their uh, workers' comp. OSHA looks at those EMR ratings, which are Experiencer Modifier Rating, and they determine, based if you have a high number in your industry, that's going to target an inspection. The other, the, you know, you got 63% there that were the result of that. The other 37% are due to fatalities or injuries or employee complaints. Now, the way they get the employee complaints is everyone, regardless of your size, if you have employees, you have to have OSHA poster someplace conspicuous at the workplace. And on that is the whistleblower number, which is OSHA eight hundred three two one OSHA. So they're, they man that phone twenty four seven three sixty five, and they get folks calling in saying this worksite or this workplace is unsafe.
0: Greg, you mentioned employer. You mentioned uh, no matter I guess how many people you have on the site, you have to have a the the OSHA poster. My understanding was, and, I, and I've, I've never been able to get a straight answer on this, that, that OSHA covers employers with, is it over nine people or greater than nine people or ten or something like that.
2: Oh, okay, here, here's the thing, and I'm not an attorney, so you, have, you need to get legal advice on this. Okay. But the one thing that if you're under ten employees, nine or fewer, you do not have to do an OSHA 300 log. Well, and, and so that means you don't have to turn that into OSHA and now it's required to do electronically and that's how they mine this data that we just talked about for these specific enforcement actions. They take the data from those OSHA 300 logs, which are all your recordable and reportable incidents in a year. You're not required to do that if you have nine or fewer employees. Having said that, you're still required, of course, if you have a fatality on site, you have to within eight hours. You have to contact OSHA that three two one OSHA you know eight hundred number. So while you're exempt from some of the record keeping, you're not exempt from the training. You're not exempt from the actual standards.
0: Okay, okay. So you still have to have like our next topic is hazard communication, the HazCom program. Um, you still have to have a HazCom program. Well, you
2: you have to have one, but you don't have to have a written one. If you have 10 employees or more, you have to have a written HASCOM plan.
0: I see. Okay. You don't
2: have to have a HAZCOM plan if, because you have, if you have hazardous chemicals at the workplace, on the work site, then the employee's right to know, and that's part of that poster, they have to have the right to know what chemicals are on the work, on the work site, and you have to have MSDS or FDS safety data sheets and that's part of uh, the GHS, uh, that's part of that standard.
0: The GHS being the Global Harmonization System, is that accurate? H&M, uh,
2: and Classifying them by Hazardous Chemicals, yes.
0: Okay. Now, so let me make sure I have this right before I move on. I've got a small construction company, I've got two guys that go out and do, you know, whatever, um, renovations and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Do I have to have that OSHA safety sign?
2: You have to have the sign, yes.
0: you Now you
2: can put it in your van. You can put it on the construction site. In fact, uh, I see on a lot of construction sites now where they put on plexiglass right on the you know job trailer or whatever. But that has to be in a conspicuous place where they can they can see it because that's OSHA's way to for folks to call in, and that's they man that phone like I said, twenty four
0: seven, three sixty five. And. If they go to a site, let's say you, you know we're in this targeted enforcement period right now, where they're not looking for looking for violations. Um, they come up to a small contracting site. They see people throwing stuff in the dumpster, or whatever that you know draws their attention. If that sign's not there, how are, what are they cited under? What what section of code? Well, they're,
2: they're cited under. a uh the employee right to know, and the, and, the, and the poster's not there. In addition, I might add, if it's a construction site, <clears throat> they may get you for uh, not having a sign hard hat area. They may get you for not having safety glasses and that signage. They may get you for not having steel toe shoes. It just depends, you know, on the on the site. But uh, again, uh, it doesn't exempt you from. Providing the PPE or requiring the PPE on site, uh, if you know OSHA comes up and says, you know this is a, this is dangerous. You're throwing things in the dumpster, uh, and you have to wear a hard hat, safety glasses, and, and steel toe shoes.
0: Okay, all right. Let's let's talk a little bit about Hazcom, the Hazard Communication. We I used to call it the Hazard Communication Standard. I guess it may still be called that. Has has come really been effective in preventing injuries and saving lives?
2: It, yes, it, it has been and, and let, me, let me tell you why um, the, when you get right down to it, um, in the to the FY 2013 and14, which runs from September to the uh, next October, there were four thousand five hundred eighty five fatalities reported to OSHA. 20% of those were construction-related, okay? Now, OSHA maintains that if, when they adopted the GHS standard as part of HASCOM, it would save one or more lives per month and at least 200 hosp- fewer hospitalizations a year. They also maintain that the workplaces that have those chemicals are safer, more productive and have better worker morale. Hmm. Okay. Now Plus, that no, that GHS that that change uh, for to OSHA's the biggest that's that GHS standard is the biggest change in OSHA in twenty years. And it's a three step process. The first phase started December one of two thousand thirteen in which all employees exposed to chemicals in the workplace were to be trained on the standard. The second component was June of this year, June 1 of 2015, and it dealt with the labeling requirements. And then the final part is 2016, uh, June 1 of 2016, and and then it will go into effect. And, you know, if any of your um, listeners have an interest in knowing if they're compliant on GHS, if they give me a call or send me an email, I can ask them a few quick questions and tell them if they're uh, GHS compliant.
0: Give us one, one question. What's one question we should be asking ourselves?
2: Uh, with regard to GHS? Yes. Well, the, the the first question, do you have chemicals in the workplace? And if the answer is yes, and, you know, they've got their list of hazardous chemicals, about 200 highly, hazard, highly dangerous and hazardous chemicals. OSHA's got a list, and they've got... And more than the 188, it fluctuates. Um, if you have any of those in the workplace, or any, you know, mixtures of that, then you have to have an MSDS or an SDS sheet on site available in an emergency.
0: Let me throw out an example. Greg, is is paint one of those?
2: Yes, paint. Yes, paint is a considered a, a chemical, yes.
0: So these are general categories of, of chemical like solvents I would imagine is one sure,
2: correct. Yes, solvents. So you would need for each one of those and, and when you buy any product today, you can ask them to send you an SDS sheet and, and they'll just send it to you or you can go online and get it, you know, on, on off of the internet. And you can have electronic copies of SDS or you can have manual copies. But you have to have something that an uh, employee, or, you know, that they can get access to immediately.
0: At the job site?
2: Just, yeah, at the job site should an accident occur.
0: Okay. Cliff, let me turn it over to you for a minute.
2: Okay. Um,
1: I, I guess, you know, what should someone do in the event that someone from OSHA shows up either at the work site? or at your
2: office, or,
1: you know, your warehouse,
2: your plant, what do you do? Well, the, the one thing that you do is, and, and what I, I recommend, if an inspector shows up at your site, your supervisor should be instructed to say this. It is company policy to deny entry on site to anyone without proper approval. However, since you are with the government, I need to get the person in charge of safety with you and they are unavailable right now, so let's set up a time where the two of you can get together and you can review the site. The last thing you want to do is just let them on site willy-nilly without being prepared, because uh, they're going to find, like, for example, if you've got extension cords that aren't taped down, that's that, that's going to be, you know, they they can cite you. If you have gym shoes on and they feel that there's a dangers of stepping on, uh, you know. Uh, sharp objects they might get you so so the, the better solution to this is say we're not denying you entry we just can't let you on right now it's company policy we've got to get the person in charge of safety there and we can't do that right now and they will come back
0: when well, you sort of answered my you anticipated my question all right will they actually leave or will they kind of try to force the issue
2: well, they typically won't force the issue because um, uh, they, 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 they the only way they can come on site then is they they can get a search warrant. Right. But you can deny them entry. It's just not a good idea to die, you delay entry. Is what I call it. Don't deny entry because they'll come back and be as mad as you know a hornet's nest. Right. Uh, what you want to do is delay entry. But if you deny entry, then they can go and get a. Court order to come on your site. Okay.
0: Cliff, anything? Go ahead.
1: What would happen? Well, let me ask a follow up question, What would happen if I've had a fatality? Does it change anything?
2: Well, what changes is uh, you're going to call them and someone's going to show up within eight hours. Okay, gotcha. that uh, 24 point, hours at the latest.
1: I, I understand that. But if, that, or, you know, if we've had an accident and we call and, and we turn them in, uh, at that point, when they show up, we can't delay
2: access. We have to allow the access. Correct, because then they're in the investigative mode. Okay. So that would not be a good I, – I, I'm not an attorney, so I can't answer that if you could absolutely deny access, but I think that would be, you know, foolhardy to do. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question.
1: Let's go back to the situation where we delayed access, and they're going to come back. I guess it would behoove us at that particular point to do whatever we could in order to get that uh, work site up to snuff, correct?
2: Correct, correct, And and I'll give you an example. I talked about extension cords before. Power tools are a big issue. Power tools, if you leave them plugged in, even if they aren't extension cords, that are, if the extension cords are taped down, it's fine. But if you leave them plugged in and go to lunch, that's a violation. Hmm. So if they were to show, come back at, you know, at lunchtime when the workers aren't there, you know, when you wanted them to, so what you would want to do is go around and do a housekeeping and make sure that you aren't in violation of any of the rules, unplug the tools, you know, do all the proper things, make sure people have hard hats, uh, safety glasses, all, you know, all those types of things. No open-toed shoes, no gym shoes. Uh, The different things of you'd have your MSDS sheets in place, you know, for the review, you'd have their training records in place so that they would know that the proper training has been done and that type of thing. So you would get ready for an inspection, yes.
0: Thank All you. right. Well, Greg, this has been interesting, and, and we're going to continue with the second half of our show in just a minute. We're going to stop first and thank our sponsors. We'll take about 90 seconds. As soon as we get back from that, for those of you on the trivia question, uh, dealing, they'd like to answer the trivia question, we're going to do that right after halftime. We'll be back with the second half of our interview with Greg Patterson. we have an interesting show on OSHA health and safety issues and the disaster restoration industry.
1: Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
0: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com.
1: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com.
0: CleanFacts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. To so many, of your answer is easy. Either i either email it to at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations <laughs> to John Turnage, Umpire Technologies, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, for the first correct answer to last week's trivia question. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, July 31st, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is prfca.org. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question: Which U.S. president signed the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which created OSHA? Back to you, Joe.
0: Thank you, Cliff. All right, we're back with today's guest, Greg Patterson. Greg, let's let's talk a little bit about. Um, just I got one more question on the new GHS Global Harmonization Program. How is it? Give us some idea of how the training is different from HazCom training, the way people used to do training, or is it tr- different at all?
2: Well, it, it is different in the sense that it, we've gone to uh, you know the different pictograms, and there are nine pictograms. Eight are ju- jurisdicted by OSHA, and one's by the EPA. Mm-hmm. So those are international standards because so many folks in the U.S. speak a variety of languages that uh, they went to uh, a visual uh, cues instead of words. So a lot has changed to simplify uh, and graphically depict uh, the danger of, of chemicals. And that's what GHS was supposed to do.
0: I see. And, you know, we've got other types of... Restoration, not just you know disaster restoration, but also people who are out there doing blood trauma, meth lab cleanup. We've got hoarders. Um, what other type of training would you recommend for those that are first responders um, or water damage or fire damage restoration people?
2: Okay, well I've got I've got several trainings I think would be good. Um, the OSHA subpart T demolition I talked about, but I would suggest that they do hazwoper. CASWOPER has 824 or 40 hours, and uh, another training that would be good uh, in the restoration area would be asbestos awareness, lead awareness, respiratory protection, decon procedures and methods, general safety, we talked about those at 10 and 30-hour, monitoring and survey instruments and how to use them, the OSHA medical surveillance program especially you have to have that program if you have respiratory protection of a certain level uh, and then for the first responders the emergency resource guidebook which is the ERG incident command system and then exercise scenarios
0: you know it sometimes as an employer myself it's it's tough how do you you know how do you balance between going out and making a living and having your people in training on a regular basis, can you give us some tips on how to get some of this training accomplished without losing too much productivity?
2: Well, there's a couple, three ways. Um, I write and uh, put on online online versions, which you know, of course the internet webinars, uh, where you don't have to actually travel and you can pick up the information. And of course, on-site training, which is the more expensive, but probably your employees gain more from that type of training. So there's three ways to deliver the training uh, and any one of those can serve that purpose uh, realizing that if you send people away from your job site you're losing production.
0: And can we do some of this training ourselves? I mean how do they determine whether I am competent to for instance train my people on oh, fall protection?
2: Okay, sure. Let's take fall protection. That's a that's a good one. If you went to a course that was that was uh, offered by the organization that you purchased your fall protection equipment from, like your hornets, lanyards, that type of thing, and you took the course, then you could go back and take that material and train your employees and act as a train-the-trainer. The issue you have to do is you have to have a training log, you have to have them sign in, you have to say who the instructor was and you have to have the notes or the information that you provided
0: to the employees okay i know one that but you I think can do it yourself you can i know one that i think is the first one i would do with people and that is ladder safety i, I rarely see people actually get training on ladder safety do you have a little program for that
2: we do. We have a program for ladder safety. Last year, the reason that OSHA has targeted and fall protection and in the construction industry so much is uh, the insurance uh, companies, the commercial insurers, uh, maintained that last year the average fall was $28,000 loss. Hmm. So that was a claim of 28000 uh, A death from a fall is r- uh, near $3 million. So you can see, the insurance industry wants to see fall protection training and the proper equipment used. So they've really supported OSHA in their uh, targeted enforcement of fall protection.
0: Cliff, let me turn it over to you.
1: Okay, thanks, Joe. Um, I think one of the one of the biggest challenges for cleaning and restoration companies is that we go into homes and. Every home or office we would work in, when you look under the kitchen sink, they have all sorts of different cleaning chemicals. You know, most houses have a garage. They're going to have different chemicals stored in the garage or or stored in the basement. And the restoration products that are used really are not much different. In many situations, they can be and are exactly the same. Um... What if anything should we do before taking normal cleaning products onto a job site in terms of being compliant to a homeowner?
2: You you you're required to take the MSDS sheets. Have those available. Okay. Should something happen, and uh, you know the homeowner can ask for those as well. Uh, any visitor, vendor, uh, contract, subcontractor. Uh, can ask that you have the proper documentation if you're bringing chemicals to the workplace. And that's the key. Because where you're, even though it may be someone's home, it is your workplace.
0: Okay. Cliff, I I know this is your baby, so I don't want to jump in too much.
1: I, I guess what I don't understand is why when you go to Home Depot and you buy all these products, uh, why it's not mandatory for you know, Home Depot to automatically give you the MSDS? You know, why do you have to you know, go out of your way and, and ask for them? And it seems to me that uh, we're just forgetting millions and millions of
2: people. Well, Home Depot will send you, or you can go online and get any MSDS sheet or SDS sheet they have.
1: No, I get it online. I, most most consumers probably are unfamiliar with OSHA or unfamiliar with Correct. what an MSDS is, and and so on and so forth. And it would just seem to me that yeah, you know, there's greater risk in terms of people injuring themselves uh, than there is having professionals injure them.
2: Well, and, and I understand that, but you have to keep in mind OSHA only deals with the workplace, so. And they're concerned with workplace safety for the public, the visitors, you know, vendors, workers, anybody that's at that workplace, they want to make sure it's safe. Yeah, but, you know, you said workplace
1: and, you know, workplace and where you're living can be the same thing because, you know, when someone puts their hard hat on at home, uh, that
2: home now becomes the workplace where they're working well and as long as you're doing work for yourself you don't have to wear that you don't have to wear the ppe's but if you hold yourself out as a business and that is a workplace that's okay. independent from yours then you're required to follow osha standards okay yeah. go ahead
0: joe let me I, I there's a new i believe and you can clarify this for me greg as i understand it osha has a new confined space rule and they go ahead yeah.
2: Well, they do have a new confined space rule. Can I give you a little bit of a background about it?
0: Yeah, please do. This is because this affects a lot of our listeners. They do a lot of work in crawl spaces. They do work in attics, okay. pipe chasing. Yes, and
2: it, in fact, I had a group call me last week. It was 112 degrees in the attic, and uh, they, their employees were getting heat exhaustion. Um, confined space. Uh, OSHA's had some problems because there's about 200 fatalities a year. In the confined space area and uh, that's a big problem for them so back in May the first week of May of this year 2015 OSHA put out a final rule that addresses confined space in construction and it kicks in August 3rd of, of it kicks in next week of 2015 now it's a 630-page rule that I've read a couple times, and it's not an exciting read, but it does have some important components in it. One of the components is it's going to create more job, jobs in construction because it's going to require more safety monitors and supervisors to sign off on confined space. Now, I do a specific training, and a, a lot of my training over the last several months has been confined space. So it, it kicks in next week, and a lot of people were trying to stay ahead of the curve and get their, uh, their employees trained up. And uh, confined space, and let me give you a, a definition of confined space. It's a limited or restricted means of entry or exit and is not designed for continuous occupancy. Confined spaces can include tanks, vessels, st- silos, storage bins, hoppers, vaults, pits, Manholes, tunnels, uh, ductwork, pipelines, and crawl spaces. Well, uh, and then they
0: go ahead. Well, from that definition, the first part of it, anyway, an, an attic is a is a confined space. I mean, if you've only got yeah, one entry and is. exit, um, it's not made for continuous, it, you know, occupation. Correct. Or uh, so. I know it's not; it's probably not a permit required confined space, but that's something we could talk about. What I've got a um, let's say I've got a mold remediation contractor; they've got a job in the attic. Give me some basic things they better make sure they have covered before they start that project with respect to OSHA.
2: Okay, for under under the confined space for construction, it starts you know next week. They have to have a written confined space plant program. Okay? Okay. And keep in, in mind that once they have it, then they have to provide training. They also need to think about monitoring, air monitoring equipment, depending on what the hazard is. So they, then they have to do a hazard analysis of the attic to determine if there's dangerous, you know, if, if there's dangerous, uh, you know, not habitable air or if it's tainted by some chemical or other ingredient. That could be dangerous to life or health. From there, then they need to have a heat, uh, a heat exhaustion program because in the summer uh, these attics are very, very hot. Okay. In addition to that, they may require certain PPE, the protective, uh, you know, personal protective equipment to be worn and to be utilized. So those are all elements that they would need prior to um you know under the confined space the new confined space rules for construction
0: all right i've got two follow ups the first one is on the written confined space program if i'm less yeah. than 10 employees do i still have to have that under the new rule
2: i i can't answer that specifically because in the 630 page final rule it it's very detailed in certain parts we really have to talk to an attorney uh, that, you know, like I said before, it, I'm not, I don't ha- I can't give legal advice and some things are required under OSHA and some things are, are not. At this point, I can't tell you if that final rule, uh, it, it incorporates under nine employees or more than nine the only way you're going to find that out is to either hire an attorney or call OSHA, one of the area offices, and ask them. And each office, may, uh, imp- they may interpret it different.
0: Okay. Now, let me get you a second question on this. Do I need to have someone outside of the attic throughout the project? Or, or anytime there's someone working in the attic, do I need to have someone outside of the attic?
2: Well, again, it's... it's in that 630-page final rule, it outlines what's required. If it's a permit required, then and you know this is getting very detailed. And, right, right. You know, probably more than we can do here. But if it's permit required, you do have to have an att- you, the entrant, an attendant, and monitor, and then a supervisor. So you would have the supervisor sign off on the on the uh, you know the restricted entry. You would have a monitor there to watch the entrant or entrance, Uh, so that would be a permit required. Under not permit required, uh, then it's not typically dangerous to life and health, so it's it's not permit required, and you wouldn't need a monitor.
0: Okay, I would think more often than not, these addicts, these guys are doing mold remediation in or you know, cleaning up after a fire or a water damage—they're more often than not probably a permit required confined space. Would you agree? Uh,
2: I would think so. Yes. Uh, now, it, again, it depends on the rest, the the, um, the type of respirator, the level of respirator they're using as well.
0: Okay, let's let's look at the same types of questions, but let's let's turn this into a crawl space. A crawl space is typically. One entry and exit, so it's a confined space. I don't have any argument with that. Um, the the let's say your typical crawl space. I've got guys going in there. They're going to be HEPA vacuuming and wet wiping mold, or um, cleaning up sewage or something along those lines in that crawl space. Can you give me some? Some tips for people uh, that are doing if, if that?
2: There, if there's methane or, or sewer gas in there at certain levels, you you need, need a monitor. Okay. Uh, if it's lower, uh, probably not, depending on the mold. If the mold's real high count and uh, dangerous to health, then you would need someone. Okay. So it, it really depends, again. Uh, there's no f- uh, short and fast answer to that.
0: It all goes back, in my mind, to your initial site-specific job hazard analysis some people call it others call it a site-specific health and safety plan
2: absolutely that's correct
0: can you comment on that for people because i think in my experience that's probably the one area where people fall down the most often they do not do that site-specific job-specific hazard analysis
2: that that's correct, and that that has to be done. That's called a hasp, a health safety plan, health and safety plan. You have to do that in advance, so then you're going to know what's required under OSHA to be compliant uh, going forward. So that's a critical component, and so you have to ferret out and find the hazards, and then you have to figure out a way to eliminate them through engineering controls or or Maybe lockout tagout, even in some cases. But if you don't, if you don't have an engineering or another control, you have to use a PPE to mitigate or reduce it.
0: Okay, and I I typically teach people. I go right to the. I forget what section that's in. I want to say that's in. It might be in the PPE section, but anyway, there are nine categories of hazard that I believe they have to look at. So impact hazard, electrical hazard, et cetera. Is that Ring a bell?
2: Correct, correct. There are several risks, and and you named a couple of them. And there's ten or twelve uh, risks, specific risks that you
0: have to look at. Okay, Cliff, let me go yes. back to you for a moment.
1: Um, I guess in the not so distant past, uh, some firms engaged in cleaning and restoration, you know, have been involved in some pretty high profile cleanups, such as with anthrax. Uh, restoration companies have been involved in, uh, or especially cleaning companies have been involved in uh, Ebola situations. I think with national security at risk, it seems that the U.S. is a target for more and, and, and more attacks. What sort of additional training do you think that a restoration firm should have to really be prepared to deal with chemical issues, potentially nuclear issues, you know, biohazards. What do you suggest?
2: Well, uh, you know, the one thing that I would suggest is you partner with someone that already does, you know, does that type of of training or uh, that type of cleanup because uh, it's real important to not this be your first time of doing it. Uh, You know, I was at the uh, clinical lab expo in Atlanta this week and we were talking about anthrax as a topic for some of the labs, And uh, one of the things, you know, and this, this applies to many of these uh, heinous, you know, terrible uh, items that we're talking about here, uh, how clean is sufficient? Well, you know, for anthrax, in 2001, the EPA stated that that standard was zero spores. Well, that's almost impossible to get to that level. Right. So, you know, and then... Does the lab, you know, have time, talent, and money to do the cleanup? You know, the public sector, they're saying now they, all the anthrax cleanup that's, that's on, on the horizon, uh, there's not the government contractors or the government folks that can do it. So that's going to fall over to the private sector.
1: Right.
2: You know, and, and if I were doing anthrax removal, I would get with companies like TetraTech, Tech, Ecology and the Environment, Camron Environmental, which is here in Atlanta, uh, BioWan, Sabertech, some of those companies have history and experience in anthrax. Okay. So I'd I'd consider something like that. And then, oddly enough, a a guy I know at uh, Sandia Labs, Mark Tucker, he uh, developed a um, product called EasyCon DF200, which works really well in Mint Labs, and they say now it works on anthrax and it's being tested as we speak. Is that the foam product? That is the foam product. Yes, sir.
1: Okay,
2: got. It. So, you know, it just it just really depends because the CBRNE stuff, you know, chemical, biological, nuclear, radiological, and explosives, those are all very specialized areas. Right. You know, and the work I've done with the Department of Energy under the Global Threat Reduction Initiative dealt with nuclear and radiological materials.
1: Right. But, it, you know, even when a firm may have experience, you know, I think much of this is like scuba diving, you know. What happens is, you, you know, you watch the video, you put on the equipment, and at some point you need to put your head underwater with it uh, yeah. for real. And, you know, some of these things, you know, they, 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 it's been done in simulators and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, it's going to be a little bit hairy.
2: Well, absolutely. And typically when, when you go to an emergency like an anthrax or, or, you know, some kind of a crime lab or whatever, a crime scene, they're going to, time is of the essence. Right. And, and the protocols and procedures that they use, uh, is they want it done efficiently, effective. Quickly, you know, and cost is not necessarily the biggest consideration there, right? Uh, because it it has to be done, you know, with with such haste.
1: Right. Well, I don't think cost is important until they get the bill.
2: Correct. Well, I mean, when when they cleaned back in two thousand one, when they had the anthrax scare at the at the uh, at Congress, you know, right. at the Capitol, they spent uh, twenty eight million dollars to clean that up. Right. But the fastest bill that's ever gone through the Congress was to get anthrax scanners at all the postal stations, and they did some bill with almost unanimous approval in four days for those scanners. Right. So, that shows you Congress can move quickly when they want to. Right, I hear
0: you. And when their lives are on the line. Now, Greg, uh, I want to uh, we've got a couple minutes left here before we wrap things up. I've got a quick question. I, I've got, let's say, I've got an employee doing some work on a roof. OSHA drives by, pulls in, sees that he doesn't have his uh, fall protection, whatever the case may be. Um, my guy is has been trained to do what you said. You know, we're not going to have a um, a site inspection until we get our safety and health guy here. We're not denying you entrance. We're just, you know, we just want to get our health and safety guy here. What's the next step?
2: Well, if he drives by and sees a guy on the roof before he comes up to your site, he's going to have taken pictures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's going to have he's going to have a good case, and he's and it's going to demonstrate that the worker did not have the proper, you know, uh, PPE. The you know, a harness are tied off properly, so that's going to be an issue. Okay. Now, you you could say, you know, I don't have my safety person here, but if he's already taking pictures and everything, he's going to have a time and date stamp on that on that camera, you know, that of uh, pictures. Uh, and they're going to give you they're going to cite you for that specific instance, even though you've asked them to come back.
0: Okay. But don't I... That's going to be a problem, yeah. I guess n- now the question becomes, do I have the programs in place and the employee just didn't follow them? Or do I not have correct. the program in place at all? Let's say... That's
2: correct.
0: And, go ahead. Well, let's look at each scenario. So I've got the program in place, but the employee didn't follow it. Now what?
2: then they OSHA can get you for failure to properly supervise. Okay. okay. Or if, if they're not doing it right, then did you do or offer retraining when you saw them? Did you stop them from working when you saw that they weren't wearing the appropriate equipment? Did you send them home? Did you give them a verbal or written reprimand? You know, did you retrain them? These are all questions they're going to ask because then it's a supervision issue in OSHA's mind.
0: Got it. All right, so let's say we've got the second scenario. I don't have a fault protection program. I'm I'm guessing and I don't know and like you said before you're not a lawyer but uh, you- do I go back and write one up real quick? I mean, is that is that well, even... Well, you could
2: go back and write one up. The problem is, is if, you know, it's going to be on your computer, and even if you backdate it, it's going to show. Yeah. So, you know, it's probably not a good, you know, and then what if one of the employees, the disgruntled employee, says, you know, th- they just wrote that because you were you were here. Uh, it's probably not good to go back and backdate things.
0: Okay, and I'm I'm assuming they will also interview... Will they interview the employee?
2: They certainly can, and they can ask you. Now, the one thing you can do is you can tell them that you do not want any employees interviewed without a representative of your company in their presence, and they generally honor that.
0: That's what I need right there. Okay. Cliff, any final questions before I do my final?
1: Yeah, I guess my final question would be, um, I I heard this, I'm not sure that it's true, that OSHA really doesn't get... Uh, money from the government, but th- they're pretty much self-funded by the fines that they give out. Is that true?
2: I am told, and I don't know because uh, this is a, a gray area to me, I'm told all the money goes into the general revenue fund, the Treasury, okay. and then it's dispersed out. Uh, it, it, so I, I, I can't answer that question. I do know that uh, last this for this fiscal year, OSHA asked for 80-some additional inspectors, and they have about 2,700 inspectors now, I think, nationwide. They asked for 83 additional inspectors to, to you know, put more people on the streets. Okay.
0: Do you know if, if they're going to get that? I don't know. No. Okay. Greg, before we go, our last question is always the same. Uh, anything you'd like to add that we missed? Any real key point that you want to make sure people out there get? And before you go, also, if you want to give folks your email address so that if they have questions or they need some training on specific things, maybe they can get in touch with you. Or if you'd like, we can just have Cliff put it in the blog.
2: Yeah, well, they can reach me on my cell phone. I carry it 24-7. It's 678-467 one two four one. Again. Six seven eight four six seven one two four one. And then you guys have my email address and they can contact me, contact you all and you can you know send it on to me and, and I'll gladly uh, answer any questions.
0: Great. And anything that you'd like uh, to add one, that we missed.
2: Yeah you know, the one thing I'd like to add is on OSHA Targeted inspections Six out of 10 inspections last year were in the construction industry. In 2013, 121 inspections resulted in fines of more than 100,000. 79 were uh, taxpayer or larger fines. OSHA, in, in the construction industry, of the six and 10 they did. 20% 20% of the inspections that they performed they found no violations or and issued no citations. So you've got a 1 in 5 chance of not if you're in, if you have an inspection of them finding you with uh, no violations.
0: Hmm. Interesting interesting statistics Greg I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, This week's guest, Greg Patterson, Uh, great job, very interesting topic. I'm glad we talked about this and um, always uh, something that folks need to be aware of, keep up on. And actually this year we had a few changes to discuss with the confined space training and uh, also with the uh, global harmonization. So thanks for joining us. We look forward to meeting in person down the road and uh, getting you back again sometime. Thank you so much. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Greg Patterson, of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, and to our engineer on the road today, but doing things remotely. Hard to believe we pulled it off, John. John, you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, great downloads again this week. We're going gangbusters. Thanks, folks. Next week, we've got... The Restoration Industry Global Watchdog with part three of our interview with Pete Consigli. We're going to wrap things up with uh, the background, the history, and we're going to go into the future today, or next week. What, what do we see for the future? How do we go ahead and uh, leave our legacy here? Because uh, we're not going to be here forever, right, Cliff? That's for sure. (laughs) All right. I look forward to getting back with all next week. We're going to be at summer camp. We'll also have a little report back from summer camp. So next Friday at noon, please come back and join us for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This
1: has been another IAQ Radio production.